started by praying, and then we're going to dive right into Psalm 77. So pray with me. Father, we are gathered here this morning in the name of your son, Jesus, who bought us with his precious blood. Dear Jesus, be amongst us today, and you promise that you are there when two or three are gathered in your name. So we ask and expect you to be here with us. Please take the words of this psalm, of this psalm that we're studying today and apply it to our hearts. Use it to lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and make straight paths for our feet. We need you and I need you today. Pray that you will just powerfully work. We love you. In Jesus' name. When Jared and I were first married, we followed the prevailing wisdom of the day, which was that it's always better to buy than rent. So we cobbled together what money we could find, and we bought a little house. It was about 980 square feet. It was built as a 1950s brick ranch in the Detroit area, and it was a fixer-upper. But it was our little home. We loved it. But fast forward about three and a half years after we moved into that house, we, were, we needed to sell it because my husband was going to get his PhD at Trinity. Well, we had bought at the peak of the market. We didn't know that. But then the market crashed, and we were severely upside down in our mortgage, and we were unable to sell that little house. The Lord did provide renters for us, and they rented and covered most of the mortgage for about four years while we were away in Chicago with Jerry's getting his PhD. Well, then they suddenly lost their jobs, and it was in November. It wasn't a good time to find renters for that house, so we actually had to move back in a hurry. And when we did, we kind of we knew the house needed work still. We had done our best, you know, as like 20-something-year-olds, painting and trying to refinish floors. We weren't really do-it-yourselfers, but we learned a lot. But we needed the floors to be refinished again, and my parents generously volunteered to pay for that. So we took all of our earthly belongings and we unloaded them into our garage while the, this company came in to refinish our floors. Well, the company that was supposed to be doing our floors, they would sand off the floor and they would collect all the sawdust into these big garbage bags and then they would tie them up and just put them outside. Well, the problem is it's really hot from sanding and that stuff is highly combustible. So as they put these garbage bags full of hot combustible sawdust out next to our garage. They eventually did combust and they lit our garage and everything we owned went up in flames. So on top of that, the morning of that fire, my husband had faxed over a request to cancel our renter's policy and all of our things. So that was trouble, but then it got a little bit worse because then when we called to make the claim on the insurance we had on our property, they had sublet they had sublet the insurance policy and somehow dropped coverage on the unattached garage. Mm -hmm. So there we were, all our stuff was gone and we had no insurance. If I had ever doubted God's faithfulness to me, it was in that moment. But the good news is that Psalm 77 is in our Bibles for times like these. Psalm 77 is for the doubting. And when we're tempted to doubt God's promises or his character, this psalm teaches us to say, I will remember. That is the song for the doubting. I will remember. Today we're going to talk about that psalm in two major parts. First the context, and then the content. So context. Psalm 77 is in book 3 of the Psalter. Pam talked a little bit about that last week. 
the shortest of the five books. There are just 17 psalms, beginning at Psalm 73 and concluding with 89. It was most likely compiled, not written, but compiled during Judah's Babylonian exile. And as you would expect then, it is a book of laments, the kind of psalms Israel needed after they had been forced out of their homes and dragged away to a foreign land. Book three is a collection of psalms describing sorrow and suffering. It depicts confusion and despair. It's full of pleading with God to relent from judging them. In this book, the Israelites grieve over the seeming loss of God's promises to them as a nation. And in their words, we hear their longings to return, to once again be with God in his presence. And we also hear some new voices in this book. So Asaph dominates. He wrote, I think, 11 of the 17 Psalms. The sons of Korah contributed four. King David makes an appearance here again with one Psalm. And then the book closes with a Psalm by Ethan the Ezraite, where he recounts very specific promises made to David. And he begs God to remember those promises and to fulfill them. So memory and remembering are not just key to Psalm 77. It's actually key to this whole third book of the Psalter. Well, Psalm 77 fits into the mold of book three perfectly, and it poses the question, is God really who he says he is? And then the psalmist begins a diligent search of history to find the answer to that question. But before we dive into that, let's look at that superscript. It reads, to the choir master, according to Jejuthun, a psalm of Asaph. So choir master, we talked about this a little bit. Um, like Psalm 46 and Psalm 80, these psalms were composed and then given to the choir master to be used for special occasions or to be performed publicly in Israel. According to Jejuthun, well, he was one of the chief musicians that King David appointed to lead public worship. So he could be the choir master, or he could just have a special role in the performance of this song. And then Asaph, so he's just like Jejuthun, he is another temple musician and choir director appointed by David, and he wrote at least 12 of our psalms. And as you saw in your homework, Second Chronicles also records that he's a prophet. Okay, that's the context, but let's now look right at the content. So the psalm breaks down into four movements, in verses 1 through 3, you get the first complaint. In verses 4 through 9, you get a second complaint, and you get a fuller understanding of what his complaint is. In verses 10 through 15, there is a resolution, and this is where he sings the song of the doubting, and he says, I will remember. And then in verses 16 through 20, we see Asaph's meditation and reflection on the things he has remembered. So let's look at that first complaint. Verse 1 opens with an unwearied cry. It says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. It's like Asaph here has trouble focusing his mind. He gets started. I cry aloud to God, and then his trouble kind of derails him, and he reboots. Okay, aloud to God, and he will hear me. But does he actually hear Asaph? Because what comes next, what Asaph describes next, kind of throws doubt onto that uh, promise he is clinging to. In verse 2, he cries out day and night. He's stretching out with his heart, with his words, and even with his hands. He is desperate to connect with the Lord. But in verse 2, all this laying bare of his soul really does nothing for him. His soul refuses 
to be comforted. So in your homework, I had you look up other places in scripture where that phrase refuses to be comforted is used. And two of those texts describe a time in Israel's history where their children were taken from them. They were either, either carted off to Babylon in exile or brutally murdered as babies at the decree of King Herod. Well, the third reference describes Jacob when he believes Joseph has been killed by wild animals. So although we don't know Asaph's specific grief in this psalm, we recognize that this type of language is generally reserved for a deep agony, much like the losing of a child. And Asaph feels like there is no comfort in such a grief. It is beyond all the old and familiar comforts. So rather than feeling his spirits lift when he remembers God in verse 3, it says he moans. He can't garner the energy to meditate on God's word. When he tries, this is also in verse 3, he faints. And then verse 4 begins the second complaint. So his spirit is fainting. But that doesn't mean his body is fainting. Look, he can't even sleep. He says, you hold my eyelids open. It's as if God himself is personally denying him any relief from his pain. Also in verse 4, Asaph is so troubled, he says, he cannot speak. Although, of course, in the very next verse, he proves he has plenty more to say. We've all been there, right? You feel so upset about something, I don't even know what to say, but out it just kind of tumbles out of your mouth. This kind of grief has to be expressed. It is going to come out. It's not going to be silent. It's going to come out in fits and spurts and disorganized thinking. Accusations are going to be in there. But it will come out. And that is Asaph in this moment. So in this mental turmoil, Asaph tries again to rally his spirits. And he's going to use the old familiar comforts of remembering and meditating. So he's working to kind of shake free of the sleep deprivation and focus on the past. You can see that in verse 5. He says, I consider the days of old. And then in verse 6, he says, let me remember my song in the night. Okay, he's been comforted by these things before, and he's going to try to use those same things to rally his spirits. But still, at this point, his memories and meditations don't yet yield any encouragement. Instead, when his spirit makes a diligent search in verse 6, it only uncovers doubts and suspicions about God's character. Now, follow along as I read Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Okay, this is the point in Israelite history when Moses has requested to see God, and God partially grants that request. Remember, he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then he kind of shields him with his hand as he walks by, and then he allows Moses to see him from behind. Well, all the while, he is proclaiming his name and his character. And this is part of what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, Asaph knows how God has described himself. Every Israelite would have probably had this text memorized. This is their God, the Yahweh, the covenant Lord. They know what he says he is like. But here, Asaph remembers how God has described himself, and he thinks it's not true. Look at what he's doubting in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? Maybe God isn't 
him slow to anger. Maybe he doesn't forgive sin. Look at verse 8. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Maybe God isn't abounding in steadfast love, or he doesn't keep it for a thousand, like he said. Verse 8 again, are his promises at an end? Well, maybe God isn't abounding in faithfulness. He's not going to keep those promises. Verse 9, has he forgotten to be gracious or in anger shut up his compassion? God has told them he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, but Asaph thinks maybe it's not true. Maybe God isn't who he said he is. And then there's a pause at the Selah in verse 9 as those doubts which he now just articulated kind of just hang there in the air. And maybe giving verbal and audible expression to all of his doubts kind of scared him a little bit. You have this experience, you express every miserable thought in your mind, and then when you actually hear the words, you're thinking, whoa, I went too far. Did I just say that? Let's go back. So those are, those are dangerous accusations he's just made about God. And when our minds do the same thing, when that happens, the best thing we can do is double down and go right back to the truth you're doubting and try again. So Asaph knows that doubt is not instantly erased. It's going to take repeated exposure to the truth. So Asaph doesn't just let those doubts hang there. No, he says, that's wrong. Go back. And then the third movement, that's exactly what he does. Here we have the final resolve. I will remember. And this time, he doesn't let his grief derail him, and he stays on track. What does he choose to remember? He remembers not only what God has said about himself, how God describes himself, but he also remembers how God has proved that he is exactly who he says he is. So in verse 10, he remembers. Okay, that expression, I will appeal, can also be translated, I will remember. And here he remembers that God is the most high God. Okay, the first time this name for God shows up in Scripture is way back in Genesis 14. So Abraham has just rescued Lot from the people who carried him off out of Sodom. And the mysterious king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God arrives on the scene to bless Abraham. That's Melchizedek. And in Melchizedek's blessing, he describes the Most High God as possessor, or some translations say creator, of heaven and earth. Okay, so this God, our God, is above all other gods. He made and he owns the world and all of its people. Next, Asaph speaks of the years at God's right hand. That's also in verse 10. And the, the years just suggest God's eternality and his unchangeableness. There are countless years at God's right hand. All of history is there, and he has been God most high for every one of those years. And the right hand signifies God's power and might and his ability to save people. Scripture often uses this phrase to refer to someone's strength. So Asaph, in this verse, is turning away from his doubts, and he is turning toward the powerful possessor of heaven and earth. He turns to the eternal mighty God who can and has delivered. But not only does Asaph recall who God is, he remembers what God has done. So you see that in verses 11 and 12. He speaks of the wonders and the deeds and the works of the Lord. And these works that he's remembering, they actually correspond with the character, 
traits that Asaph is remembering. So God proves he's the most high God when as possessor and creator of nature, he commands the Red Sea and it divides to let his people through. He proves his mighty right hand when he rescues Israel and he destroys their enemies. And he proves his age and eternality. He's the God who has worked these wonders of old in verse 11. He has been on the scene demonstrating his character since ancient times. And the takeaway from these verses really is this. It's God's work that proves his character. We know what God is like, not just because he tells us and describes himself to us, but we know, we know what he's like because he demonstrates what he is like with his works. And here, when Asaph intentionally chooses to remember God's works, his doubts about God's character begin to fade. Now look at verse 13. Here's where we see that shift in pronouns. So prior to this verse, it's a lot of I, 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 I. And now we're shifting to that second person pronoun of you. So Asaph and his doubts have dominated his speech until now. He's just been looking inside of himself for answers. But now Asaph stops talking about himself and he begins to talk to and about God. He's praying. And this is where his doubts really begin to diminish with prayer. All right, that's an obvious lesson right there. But this is a specific kind of prayer. He's actually not asking God for deliverance. Instead, all his remembering has just funneled down into a simple prayer of praise. He praises God for his character in verse 13. And then he praises God for his works in verses 14 and 15. And specifically, he focuses on the, the magnificent work God did for his people when he brought them out of bondage in Egypt. In the final stanza, Asaph is still praying, but his prayer becomes this poetic meditation on Israel's deliverance before it concludes with four reflections on how God works. So in verses 16 to 18, we see God almost as a warrior. He comes down, and the waters see him, and they tremble, and they're very afraid. It's as if God is throwing lightning and thunder like arrows at his enemies. He whips up the water and the wind, the earth trembles and shakes, and then a path appears. For previously there had been nothing, and God leads his people right through the sea. A greater wonder had never been seen. If you look back at verse 14, at that phrase, you made known your might among the peoples. Well, that's the nations. He's not talking about his people. He's talking about the peoples on the outside, the nations from Psalm 2. So the world was watching. The pagan nations all around saw or heard how God decimated Egypt at the Red Sea. They knew he had made a mockery of their gods with the plagues. And then they watched as a small nation of enslaved shepherds emerged out of the Red Sea, carrying with them the wealth of Egypt. So it's no surprise that this moment in history is the one that a doubting Asaph chooses to remember. God made a way for his people at the Red Sea when there was no way. There was no way. And all of a sudden, in a miraculous feat, God made a way for his people. And Asaph's doubts are dispelled when he remembers and he meditates on God's mighty work in the past. But Asaph isn't done praying. Okay? He's kind of fired up his memory and imagination in stanza three. 
um, and then describes it very poetically in stanza four. But now he wants to reflect on the significance of this truth, that God proves his character with his works. And he makes four reflections on how God works. And verse 19 has that first reflection. He says, your way was through the sea, or as the parallel line states, your path through the great waters. And the first thing to recognize here is that God makes a way when there seems to be no way. So remember, Israel had to leave Egypt in haste. Um, they, had, they had their first Passover. They made their food in haste. They ate with their sandals already on because God was getting them ready to run out the door. So a great cry goes out in Egypt. Moses pays Pharaoh a midnight visit. Pharaoh says, go, and they do, but not before plundering the Egyptians, right? So they run out of the country in the dark of night. Well, they wandered through the wilderness for a little bit. They had made some progress on their way out of Egypt. When God tells Moses something kind of surprising, he tells Moses, turn back, go back, turn back and go to the Red Sea. Why did he do that? They were making progress. Why did he turn them back? Well, God had one last wonder to perform in the sight of Pharaoh. He knew Pharaoh would harden his heart and come to, to reclaim his slaves. So God led Israel into a trap between the armies of Egypt and the Red Sea. And Israel's faith, not for the first time, and certainly not for the last, just fails them. And they complain to Moses, are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? And Moses responds, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. You will never see these Egyptians again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And Psalm 77 depicts that fight. God made a way for Israel when there seemed to be no way. Similarly, God has made a way for us. We were enslaved by sin. We were being crushed by the oppression of it. We were trapped in a foreign land outside God's presence. We were trapped between our guilt and God's justice, and there was no escape. But when there seemed to be no way, God opened up a way for us. He sent his own son, God in the flesh, to bear our sins on the cross. He destroyed sin. He erased the claims the devil had on our souls, and he redeemed us from slavery, making us his people. And that is how God works. In impossible situations, he makes a way. So if the New Testament is cross-centered, the Old Testament is Exodus-centered. Okay, the psalmist looked back to the Red Sea to confront his doubts, but we look back to the cross to confront ours. We look to the place where God so powerfully proved that he is exactly who he says he is. He loves us. He is faithful. He does forgive sin. And we know this is all true because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. But not only does verse 19 teach us that God makes a way when there seems to be no way, it teaches us that his way is often difficult. Okay, God's path leads right through the sea, right through the deep waters. Sea is always in scripture a metaphor for darkness and chaos and evil. And this was Israel's way right through the sea. Noah's path was through the flood. 
Suffering was the plan for David. Jesus walked the agonizing road to Calvary. God's way is through the great waters. God leads his people in a way that requires faith. And he leads in a way where there can be no doubt that he is the one who is doing the work behind the scenes. I mean, would you have been the first Israelite to step into the sea that night? <laughs> Jesus himself struggled with the path that God laid out for him. But difficulty, suffering, and trouble are the path. This is the way. But Asaph makes a second reflection. Not only is God's way through the sea, but God's footprints are unseen. So a couple things here. First, his footprints are there. He's right there with you in the sea. He won't leave you, but you can't see him. Okay, Psalm 77 is all about God's working. It's all about God displaying his might and his power on the behalf of his children. He is there. There is no mistaking it. The evidence is all around you, but you just can't see him. So Asaph's third reflection, God leads his people like a flock. So in the first half of the psalm, Asaph is talking a lot about himself. And this, of course, just underscores the isolating power of doubt. Doubt tempts us to kind of recede inward. We start looking internally for answers. And we focus on the trouble, sometimes to the point where we just disengage with the people around us. But here at the end of the psalm, Asaph is rejoicing in God's deliverance of all his people. This is no longer a personal lament. This is a community remembrance. His perspective has broadened. He's gotten outside of himself. He recognizes that something much larger than his own trouble is going on here. God is working for all his people, the whole flock. Now, Pam talked a little bit last week about sheep and how helpless and needy they can be. And it's not really a flattering comparison, is it? But it is an honest one. And when you're in a tight place, stuck between the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh, what would you rather be? It is good to be a sheep in those moments. When you're powerless to help yourself, what we really need is a shepherd. Our culture tells us that we're masters of our own fate. We make our own way, but that is a lie. And there is so much danger in believing it. We cannot go our own way. That only leads to death. And to help us see that reality, God kindly backs us up to the sea and plants a great foe in front of us, and then we recognize what we are. We are sheep, dependent on our shepherd to make a way for us. Okay, fourth and final reflection. God led his people by the hands of Moses and Aaron. Here at the end of the song, Asaph's hands, remember they were stretched out in grief back in verse 2? Well, his hands find comfort in the tangible human hands of Moses and Aaron. But of course, it's the unseen arm of God who joins the hand of the supplicant with the hand of, his, of Moses and Aaron. So we can't see God, but we can see those people he has ordained to help us through the great waters. And here you should think about all the people God has placed in your life help you walk the way God has made for you. Think first of those people who told you about Jesus and brought you to salvation. Think of the leaders God has ordained for you to follow. The pastors at church are God appointed to shepherd us. But even more broadly, the whole community of believers exists for this purpose. We help one another onto God. 
So we stretch out our hands like Asaph to our brothers and sisters, and we do it both in need and in generosity. So we confess our sins to them, we humbly ask for forgiveness, we share our burdens, and we depend on their support. We give generously of our time, money, our spiritual wisdom, we share their woes, we freely forgive, sympathize with weakness, we encourage strength, we show mercy and compassion. We're quick to listen and slow to speak, but when we must speak, we do it with gentleness, using God's word to both rebuke and encourage. And when we act in these ways, we're doing God's work. Our human hands reveal God's mighty right hand and his invisible arm to one another and to the watching world. By the end of the psalm, Asaph is no longer moaning and fainting like he was in the beginning. By choosing to sing the song of the doubting, I will remember, his spirit is finally at peace. He believes that God is who he says he is because he remembers that God has proved his character by his mighty deeds. You know, after our fire, we had several difficult months before we were able to begin fixing our home and replacing our stuff. And it kind of felt like a path through great waters. But I have so many stories of God's material provision for us, um, and it was mostly gifts from God's people. Their prayers, their money, their food, their acts of service, and people came and helped me paint my house and clean out my garage. Um, but the real provision, oh, and quickly about the insurance thing, in case you all had a question about that. God had allowed Jared's request to cancel our renter's policy to sit on the fax all day long, and the, the request wasn't even received until the day after the fire, so they covered the claim. And then the floor company who had, who was responsible for the fire, their insurance made up what our renter's policy didn't. So we, we ended up being okay. What looked like financial ruin, was actually one of God's best provisions for us. But it was a long road because insurance companies really don't like to part with their money. <laughs> and you have to prove the claim. So and and I was pregnant with Haven here. I had to restock all my baby supplies and buy some maternity clothes. But um, God provided through his people really very generously for us. But I, the real provision was the work God was doing in our hearts. Um, we learned to God, we saw God just prove his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us in the aftermath of that fire. And he taught us to stop doubting that he is who he says. And I think if you do a diligent search of your history, you will no doubt see that God has proved his faithfulness again and again to you. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so prone and quick doubt you, that you love us or doubt that you'll keep your promises. And we are slow to believe that you are exactly who you say you are. Be merciful to us in our doubting. And in those moments, help us to sing with the psalmist, we will remember. Help us to meditate on your mighty deeds of old. And Father, walk with us through the deep waters. And even if we can't see you, Help us to acknowledge it is your power displayed in the hands of our brothers and sisters that have helped lead us along the way. And we pray also that you will use us as you did Moses and Aaron to help other doubting ones onto you. In Jesus' name, amen.